to another installment of Ego Check with the ID DM. I am your host, Michael Mallon, and today I am joined by Hulk Robinson, a founder of the Role Playing Game Research Project. I'm currently a registered recreational therapist, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I have been aware of your website, the RPGResearch.com, for quite some time with my background. Uh, as a psychologist and really being interested in the um, behavioral health, mental health uh, benefits or issues that are involved in role-playing games. Um, so I've been really familiar with your work, and I'm excited to talk to you here today. And the interesting thing in kind of preparing myself to discuss this with you and kind of searching around, clicking around on your uh, website is that this has been a, a bit of a lifelong mission for you. This has been something that you've been doing since the 80s. So how did this all start? I just I find that story really interesting. Yeah, so uh, I first was introduced to gaming around 78, 79 by a cousin uh, with Advanced Dungeons & Dragons and played sporadically here and there when he was in town or with some friends. And by – so I was about eight or nine years old then – and by about 83 or so, I was playing fairly regularly, about once a week with a regular group, and um, and then started GMing around that time as well. I was going to a school called Realms of Inquiry in Utah. It's a school for gifted and talented children, okay. uh, a private, non-denominational school. And at one point, we lost our drama teacher who got an offer to go to Broadway. What drama teacher would say no to that? Sure. Wow. <laughs> so we Probably lost our drama teacher. From Broadway, that's pretty Yes, indeed. Yeah, from teaching you know high school drama to that. What a, what a jump. So uh, we lost our drama teacher suddenly, and they didn't have a replacement, and it was going to be a while. So they were turning the last period of the school day into study hall. And I got the wild idea to ask them if we – well, let me back up a second. Okay. Some months before, a year or so before, the, the anti-gaming hype had started. Um, <clears throat> they, they On Donahue and Geraldo Rivera and all these other shows, they were talking in, in Canadian broadcast news. They were talking about the dangers of role-playing games and does it cause suicide or homicide, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Sure. I think there was even a 2020 <clears> – <throat> Report yeah. sixty minutes twenty yeah. twenty they they all piled on from throughout the mid to late eighties so this was the early stages of that in the, the earlier mid eighties and I was in Utah which uh, is predominantly Mormon at the time it was about ninety percent Mormon ten percent non Mormon now the Salt Lake area is about fifty fifty but the rest of the state is still very predominantly Mormon and um, had been running into a little bit of pushback. Uh, some of the librarians, when they realized we were gaming at the library, stopped letting us uh, allocate the quiet room for gaming because they, they were afraid of gaming and, and other things like that. And then at the school, which was a, a, a pretty open-minded school, you know, for gift and talent children, they, they have a much broader perspective. But we'd be playing during lunch break or something, and some of the kids would be kind of taunting and, and such, like, ooh, you're going to summon the devil, things like that. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, uh, I've always been a lot taller than my peers, so not subject to being bullied, per se. I was usually the one who stopped the bullies, but there was some teasing going on. Okay. And uh, finally, at one point, we were asked to do, in our English class, uh, honors English class, to do an essay on current events, so I picked the whole role-playing gaming uh, at that time, the, the term satanic panic hadn't quite caught on, but that's what it later would be referred mm -hmm. to as. And so I did an eight-page essay, and the teacher liked it so much that she had me read it for the whole school. And that helped a little bit. Some people went, oh, okay, it's just a game, and it's not as much as the hype was pointing out, etc. You're, you're not opening up portals to some other dimension. Exactly, summoning, exactly. Summoning the devil, sure. Right, right. And it didn't. there was no indication of increased suicide and homicide, even though Patricia Pulling was going around at that point, around that point training police stations to look for the danger signs and how to safely handle and confiscate role-playing game material, etc. There wasn't a ton of research out yet. There was just a little bit coming out. But that was the first time I did some research on the subject, so somewhere around 83-ish or so. Then a year or so later, we didn't have the drama teacher. The teasing pretty much went away for the most part after the, the essay because at least you know information 
ignorance breeds misunderstanding and you get rid of the ignorance and some people are willing to, to, to stop then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and at this school, it wasn't a problem. So fast forward and I went to the headmaster and said, uh, could we do role-playing gaming for that period? It's close to drama. <laughs> okay. You're playing a role. You're taking on a character. And he's like, hmm, I'll tell you what. This is, I think it was on a Thursday or Friday. Why don't you come back to me next week with a, with a syllabus for your class and what you're proposing, and, and we'll talk then. So a whole weekend, I'm fast and furious. I'm trying to find a template for a good classroom syllabus and figure out all the details and what classroom would be the best one. And I came in Monday and had a meeting with the headmaster and, and sold him on it. And he said, okay, great, as long as your grades don't suffer, and it will go away once we have a new drama teacher. But no, let's give this a shot. People can choose to either go to study hall or your role-playing game class. Wow. And so I asked to use the biology lab because instead of desks, it had tables with chairs. Okay. So it was a better format for a role-playing game set, tabletop role-playing game setup. And what I, the format was, uh, I would do a quick five to ten minute lecture on some role-playing game related topic. Uh, maybe it was how to design a character, or maybe it was you know how to watch for traps in a dungeon, or maybe it was something to do with the current events, etc. And and do a very quick Q and A after that, and then we would dive in. And each table had a different game. Uh, at that time, it was Merp Middle Earth Role Playing by Iron Crown Enterprises. Mm -hmm. uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons First Edition, Twilight 2000, um, Paranoia, Star Wars, the old D6 version, FASA's Star Trek, um, Call of Cthulhu, and then there'd be one or two others that would kind of come in and out of there. But those were the main ones because I was trying to cover the different genres so it would have the widest appeal possible. And so we had about 44 students in the upper schools, a small private school. But that was, you know, a, a fair number of people. Now, not everybody chose to play. Some mm -hmm. did study hall. But slowly over time, they started to come check it out. And what happened was I would run a table. Some of my other friends would run a table. We'd run them through a very quick mini scenario in about 30 minutes or so, 30, 45 minutes, um, just to get the... the the flavor of it. And then by the second week, we started to do a campaign throughout the whole week where it had, you know, okay, next, now tomorrow, we're going to continue. And then tomorrow we'll continue and just kept doing 45 minute segments. And so starting in, in, you know, high school and now, you know, 30 years later and you're still <laughs> working in this area, what, it must be important to you. <laughs> Apparently. Now, again, I, you know, that went on for a couple of months, and then we got a new drama teacher, and that went by the wayside. I then started hosting some s small conventions and just kept gaming on and off over the years. And then I had careers. I was a certified mechanic, professional photographer. I was involved with technology forever. Still am. Computer science. And in 03, I was able to retire from computer science, come home and raise my kids full time. And... I've got three boys, and I was looking ahead to what do I do when they're all grown? Do I go back to computer science or something else? And I looked at child psychology because some of my schools, I'd started to get these kids, my computer training schools I, I'd created. Um, I'd get kids with ADHD, and I'd use games to help them overcome their distractions and help them learn their topics. Mm -hmm. And I'd look at child psychology, but my psychologist friend said, you know... And, I, and I'm very ADHD myself, so uh, and diagnosed, so not just not just pulling it out of thin air. Okay. Um, and they said, you know, there's a ton of paperwork for every hour you spend with a client. You're going to do an hour of paperwork. <laughs> uh, why don't you look at alternative therapies? You might like that a little bit more. And so then I stumbled across recreation and music therapy from that. But I'm interested in the research too. So yeah. I've been working on interdisciplinary degree in. Recreation therapy, music therapy, neuroscience, and research psychology to kind of shore all of that up. And how have you been going about collecting data on some of the projects you're working on? So it's one of the main things is a this large repository at RPGresearch.com. And basically, as I would start writing papers back in 2004, really trying to determine more of the correlative and causal effects of role-playing gaming upon participants, um, I noticed that there were an awful lot of silos out there. I would finally, I'd find people who were trying to do similar things, but they weren't sharing their info. Maybe they got something published in some journal here and there, but for, for the general public, that wasn't accessible. Now that I was in a university, I had access to these libraries, but they were pretty limited. Back in 04, there was only, there were only about 
50 to 60 real re research studies and then maybe another 50 loose. They, I mean, they, they were research, but they weren't formal studies. So less than 100 studies to pull upon to try to find out the effects of role-playing games. Now, and you're since, talking about tabletop role-playing games. Uh, all forms. Okay. Table, tabletop, live-action, computer-based, and solo. Now, video gaming is a whole other subject, and that's had a, a lot of growth in research, both role-playing and otherwise. The McGonagall, Jane McGonagall, is a big advocate for video games, trying to get everybody to play an hour a day because of brain recovery, etc. So that's a whole other topic unto itself. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did initially look at tabletop and live action primarily, but computer-based also has its place, for example, in some of my programs of brain injury recovery and such, which we can talk about in a little bit. Yeah. Now, but so the repository, I, I first started on my own, one of my own websites, uh, just started as I found the research, I was sharing it. And then in 06, I formally created RPGresearch.com as a website for everybody to start sharing their research info and their experiences. And that's been the central repository. Now, some of it I can't make publicly available because of copyright uh, from people's research. So there's a lot more on that server that I have access to than the general public. But every month I get somebody who gives me permission and so more and more becomes available to the public. Sure, and for, for those who might not be too keen on how like academic research works, so like I've had some articles published in the past, you know, I have a blog as well, but I can't just put those out for free on my blog because right. the journal that published those articles owns that material. Yeah, they, they take over your intellectual property rights, which I'm have a lot of consternation about. <laughs> and so I've been looking at uh, more open journals. So, for example, um, um, the International Journal of Role-Playing, IJRP, is an open journal. They ask that you don't simultaneously publish, at least for a little while, for, while they get traction. It's freely available. And is that peer-reviewed in some it way? Is peer, it is peer-reviewed. Okay. There's a whole staff of PhDs who peer-review it. Okay. Um, and Sarah, Professor Sarah Lynn Bowman out of Texas, I don't know if you've spoken with her yet. I have not. If you want somebody who's really knowledgeable on the LARP side, so I'm very strong on the tabletop and moderately strong on the computer-based, I'm weakest on the LARP side. Mm -hmm. And I've been, over the years, learning more and more with that. She is very strong on the LARP side, and she did publish a book, The Functions of Role-Playing Games, which was actually on tabletop role-playing gamers as part of her, her PhD thesis. And she's out of uh, University of Texas, Austin. Uh, she also organized the Living Games Conference this May, um, and is, she travels all over the world re regarding LARP, live-action role-playing. So definitely, if you want to do a topic on LARP, she is your per the person to cool. talk to. Thanks. And one of the some of the folks I spoke to recently are uh, Adam Johns and Adam Davis from the yes. Wheelhouse Workshop, and I know they work pretty much exclusively with the younger population. And I know that you work with a wide range of um, ages, including folks who have had strokes, TBIs, or traumatic brain injury. For those who don't know what TBI stands for, um, and so how do you go about? Doing that, I understand you have this trailer that's uh, kind of a mobile gaming unit. Can you want to explain that to the audience a bit? Okay, so the wheelchair-friendly RPG trailer is, and you can get more info at rpgtrailer.com. Uh, right now, I have a prototype of what eventually I hope to have, like the perfect version, but I'm not there yet. Okay, it, ha it is a toy hauler RV trailer. It's meant originally designed to drive uh, ATVs and motorcycles into the back, and because of that has a ramp in the back and the floors are reinforced. Most RVs, if you put an electric wheelchair in there, um, you would fall through the floors. They're not very strong in, in most RVs. Mm -hmm. And but with the toy haulers, the floors are very strong. And again, you have the ramp um, to, to for easy wheelchair access. When I was volunteering at St. Luke's Rehabilitation here in Spokane in the Traumatic Brain Injury and Spinal Cord Injury Department, we were constantly struggling for facilities resources. Uh, if it was the wrong time of day, we couldn't do the drum circles and such because of the noise. Uh, if it was another time of the day, the rooms were all taken by the occupational therapist, speech therapist, Zumba person, what have you. Mm -hmm. And so it was always a challenge for the resources, and it's a good-sized rehab facility. Um, and at one point, and most of these people are in wheelchairs because of the brain injury and spinal cord injuries. I, I said, what if I like 
brought in a big trailer and wheeled everybody in the back. Could we do everything there? So we quit running in all these facility conflicts. And they're like, yeah, that would be great. So that was the idea a couple of years ago that started to germinate. Okay. And finally this October, I just I, – I put down my own money. I, st- I have a fund towards building the ideal trailer, but I put down my own money to just buy an existing trailer that was close enough to work as a prototype and, and start working out the bugs. And so what I can do is I pull it with my SUV. I come down to their parking lot, um, you know, on scheduled time, drop the ramp. They wheelchair everybody out of the facility, and, and they do that often. As recreational therapists, you're often taking people out mm-hmm. uh, to get them out of their rooms and get them moving and doing stuff. So take them into there, close the ramp, and they can do a drum circle. They can do role-playing game session. They can do, you know, they can be the headquarters for a live-action role-playing. If it's a nicer day, we might be out in the park and such. Mm-hmm. And uh, it gives a nice, safe, nurturing environment Um and they can make as much noise as they want because the, the rehab facility, you know, like most hospitals, there's there's noise limits. Sure. And uh, be able to engage in the activities. Also, a lot of small towns don't have any facilities or very limited facilities. So now I'm able to go to remote locations, including in front of people's houses, and pull up to people who have accessibility issues and provide these services that are recreation, music therapy-based, but mostly role-playing gaming as the modality. Okay. And so these are like, for example, you go to St. Luke's and like, do you run a gaming session for several of the people on the ward there? How, how does that work? So typically it's more one-on-one for the brain injury okay. uh, clientele, unless they're getting closer to discharge. If they're closer to discharge, then you can start using them in groups. So I have a program plan for severe brain injury recovery that starts with them just as they're coming out of coma uh, stage one to Ranchos Los Amigos stage two. Uh, where they can respond to uh, to binary questions, you know, yes, no responses with either an eye blink or a hand squeeze, but they're probably still intubated. And if they're oriented to time, place, person, uh, and some are and some aren't, it, it varies with every client, then they can potentially start uh, a role-playing game program starting with an interactive choose-your-own-adventure. Mm-hmm. So the uh, therapist would provide binary questions in which they can respond yes or no to going through like a murder mystery or something like that. And what the purpose is, you know, 30 years ago, um, you, you know this, I'm sure, but in case others are not aware, with brain injury, 30, 50 years ago, the standard practice for brain injury was put everybody in a quiet, dark room. Don't disturb them. Don't agitate them. It's, it's, it's too much stimulus for them. And then we found out that was the worst thing possible you could do for them mm-hmm. because it wasn't getting the brain to jumpstart and kick in that neuroplasticity, that, that uh, A, restarting the areas of the brain that shut down to protect itself, and B, routing around the areas that are damaged and compensating for areas that might not recover. And the more you can stimulate them to the threshold that doesn't cross the overstimulus threshold, the more stimulus you can give them to more parts of the brain, the better their long-term prognosis. And... So, and the earlier the intervention, the better. Once you get past that initial swelling being under control at first 72 hours or so, you want to, as soon as possible, start to engage that activity. And so imagination lights up many, many parts of the brain as though you're engaged in the activity. And the more in-depth that imagination, the more it lights up. So starting with Choose Your Own Adventure... You just you you read a section to them. They tell you which you know what you want to do. You then jump to the page, and it just goes back and forth like that with the eye blinks and hand squeezes. Mm-hmm. Again, assuming they're oriented and not you know having any delirium or anything like that. Certainly. Then, as they progress, uh, they may still be intubated, may or may not. It varies. Uh, but if they can get some hand motion, or if the facility has eye uh, control equipment, they can do a turn-based role-playing computer video game that waits for input and it's it's critical that it's turn based because if it's you know if it's reflexes dependent they're they're going to be completely frustrated mm-hmm. um, but if it's turn based it you know they make a selection they might use a palmer grip on a mouse or whatever a, adaptive means of interfacing with the computer and tell their character to do something and then the computer does it and then they might have to read a little something or you might have to read to them if if they're having some vision impairment and then they can keep making these choices, and they're getting a little bit of motion. Now they're doing some motor coordination efforts. It might be gross motor at this point, but again, you're getting that part of the brain going as soon as possible. Yeah, and just to, to jump in, it sounds you know one of the things you're talking about is 
you know, mobility issues, disability issues. And I, I think even as gaming and tabletop role playing game, gaming becomes more popular, it's very much, you know, a bunch of able bodied people sitting around a table and there's kind of the stereotype of that's the way it is. And, you know, I like some things in the community. Um, just for example, uh, Brian Patterson, who does the D20 monkey comic, one of the ongoing characters in that story is a blind character. And there's been story arcs in the comic about what it's like for that character to be a player in the game. Mm-hmm. And even with the thing of – he had a comic recently about the character actually rolling a, di- rolling a dice, even though mm-hmm. he wouldn't be able to see the result but just wanted that tactile, I want to roll a dice for this. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's great for people in the community to be broadening their horizons about what gaming can be. So hearing about – you know, your efforts with this trailer are, are really cool, uh, for lack of a better term. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> um, so and it, it, seems, and it really is... It, yeah, go ahead. It really is from a background of recreational therapy, which specializes in adaptive activities like these. Mm-hmm. So for some reason, though, I've not found a single recreational therapist who's ever considered a role-playing game as a modality, any, any of them, prior to me. <laughs> okay. And yet it's a perfect match for, for providing an intervention modality for people with different needs, both educational and therapeutic. It really fits very well. And is this something that you've extended to – I think you've even mentioned that you've used this with like uh, individuals in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, like working with an older group of individuals. How has that been compared to working with the younger Yes, so students? I've – I've non-therapeutically had gamers in their 70s and 80s, no problem. In the therapeutic setting, it's so far the oldest I've had therapeutically, I think, was their upper 60s, maybe their early 70s. Okay. Um, because it, there's acceptance of ideas that some groups are less open to than others. So uh, when approaching some 80- and 90-year-olds, the entire concept of role-playing gaming is very alien, and some are not really open to taking on new modality. They'd rather do activities they're already familiar with rather than have to learn a new skill. Mm -hmm. And again, there's always exceptions, but that's been kind of the general. But what I'm seeing is those that had some exposure to gaming, as they're starting to age into the the more senior uh, level there, um, that's an activity they did when they were younger that now they may have more free time and they would love to do, but the facilities have no background to provide it. And so I'm seeing it, it right around the, the mid to upper 60s is the upper age of people who would re- love to do role-playing gaming, that it's an easy sell. Um, I, I think I had one group. I mean, I've definitely done music therapy with 70s, 80s and Parkinson's and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've discussed the role-playing gaming with some of these people in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, but other than people who were already playing and not in a therapeutic setting, I haven't yet been able to implement that in a therapeutic setting. Yeah, because I think that would be – I used to do home-based um, visits as mm-hmm. a psychologist and would drive out to uh, – I was actually working with veterans, so I'd drive out to their homes. And I, I certainly wasn't doing a role-playing game, although in retrospect, like what a cool idea. Um, like if you could get together with somebody and – Try to do, or even I think it makes more sense maybe doing it in a nursing home or something where right. you have a group yes. of people who are kind of a captive audience. Exactly. Yes. And, <laughs> and, I, yes. and to do this and do some pre and post measures of whatever ideas you can come up with. And, you know, there's a study. Like that would be fascinating to look at. Yeah. And it's in my to do queue. <laughs> I, I imagine you have a to do queue of about 30,000 items. <laughs> like that basically as the opportunities pop up i jump on them that's part of the beauty of the trailer is what was happening prior to the trailer is it was such a struggle to schedule and get uh, a a space to do the activity Mm -hmm. because there's everything gets so booked by everybody else and my being able to just pull up to the parking lot has made it so that I don't really, there's not a big scheduling issue. The only scheduling is for individuals if they're booked up, but it's no longer a big resource problem. Um, It's now, I mean, it's a resource problem that now I'm booked up till the summer. (laughs) I I hope to resolve that with more people coming on board to help down the road. Uh, A new person just joined who he, he's an LPN and he used to do what you were saying. He did, in addition to working at uh, the uh, cardiac center at, 
um, one of the local hospitals here. He also did the home care for a while there. He was originally trained in the military, okay. uh, became an LPN. Kind of and like he's been home health, nursing, that sort yeah, of thing. He did all of that as well. And uh, he's been gaming since 79 as well. He runs, he is the Wizards of the Coast representative here for uh, D&D 5th edition organized play. Uh, name's John Welker. And, okay. and so he runs the Spokane Area Gaming Alliance. And um, so he's come on board. He wants to become one of my first certified trainers uh, because I've been working on these courses to train people in these activities. And that will hopefully make it so that now, instead of me being the bottleneck because I can only book so many people a week, uh, he'll be able to start help and we'll train more people and more people. And so as I think you sent me this this document of this uh, kind of handbook of practice. Is that yes. the thing you're talking about? Yeah, so I, I didn't part. have it. Yeah, I didn't have a chance to go through all of it because it's quite a, a hefty document, and it's something that obviously you're very passionate about is trying to instruct um, other individuals to use role-playing games for these more therapeutic um, outcomes. And I wonder in general, how would you describe that effort? This is based on the template of the Recreation Therapy Handbook of Practice, which is a professional document, a book that we as recreational therapists refer to. And it uses the World Health Organization's International Classifications of Functioning and Disability with codes so that a recreation therapist can adapt an activity to fit a participant's uh, current level of functioning and whatever established disabilities and then try to measure their improvement as they go. Um, it might be that they have weakness in one arm. It might be, you know, because of a stroke or something. It might be they have some sort of speech impairment, etc. And all of that gets measured in an initial baseline. And then you engage in the activities, and this gives some form of measuring the activity. So I followed that exact template, but instead of interjecting, you know, a hundred different activities from various recreation therapy have focused on the different four game, the four different types of role playing game formats, tabletop, live action, computer based and solo play and list the adaptations for the different levels of functioning. And so as I have done pilots or I have worked in different facilities um, and then some of it is some portions and I try to label those say hypothetically, I've worked with this population, I've seen these limitations, so I think you will need to make these adaptations. <coughs> Excuse me. For example, I have, well, I've had friends with vision impairment. I haven't actually run um, a gamer with vision impairment, but I've gone through and done the research on the different adaptations for vision impairment that might be necessary to help someone participate more comfortably. Dice that speak out, things like that, using a tablet, and mm -hmm. all these different options. And so the book lets... You don't have to be a recreational therapist to benefit from it. Any professional could use it. And laymen who might be open to having people with different uh, disabilities participate in their game, not trying to achieve a therapeutic goal, but just, well, I've got somebody coming in who's, you know, has vision impairment or who has cerebral palsy. We, we have one gamer down at the local gaming store who has cerebral palsy mm -hmm. and, you know, and is wheelchair bound and it can only use one hand. And, uh, for a dungeon master who may never have had any background working with those populations, they may want to welcome them but not know how to handle it. And this handbook can give them a quick little checklist of, well, if with this disability at this level of functioning, here's the different things you might want to offer as adaptations. So for cerebral palsy, you might want to offer a dice tower because shaking the dice can be difficult, mm -hmm. but they can pick them up and drop them in. So it sounds a, a little bit less prescriptive and more here are some things to be mindful of if you see x y and z well there's there's two parts there's okay. the, uh, there is what i've just covered which is to try to cover all the bases and give you the guidance and then there there is the okay you have a brain injury of this area and this level of impairment it is recommended to take follow this program uh, along these lines to improve their speech, improve their cognition, etc. So you have two parts between the functioning and the disability and, and that I'm trying to fill in because right now it's a skeleton. And as I work on different programs, I've been doing these for about 12 years now, and others tell me and I work with others and they do their studies and research I find, start interjecting all of those into there. So the one hand is adaptation 
to just make it so they can participate in the activity as normally as possible, but not necessarily trying to achieve a therapeutic or educational goal. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand is, okay, here's your therapeutic or educational goal. What are the things you need to do and what, what, what does the program look like to get to that goal? So it tries to handle both. Yeah, and how much of it is helping GMs, uh, game managers, just be better overall like game managers? It, it sounds like there's some just some useful information that would be there regardless of who you're working with. Yes, there's a lot of general advice about – um, what I've observed, and I've done some controlled studies with uh, feedback questionnaires, you know, before and after, and uh, over time, uh, for getting a higher level of immersion and satisfaction reports and enjoyment, uh, and overcoming uh, the various challenges. So, for example, dealing with a rules lawyer. Um, I was recently it was recently pointed out that I put a whole section in there about dealing with rules lawyers, and that really that's about somebody who has a strong fear about lack of control and if they don't feel out of control then there's less of that need to interrupt the game right then and there and argue about a rule as long as they feel they're getting hurt and that, that there'll be some predictability to it and so there's a whole section in there for some examples I've experienced of helping them you know they can pass me a post-it or after each session we'll sit down and talk about it you know, be very consistent once you make a ruling that might not be in the rule book or that goes against the rule book. You need to, as a GM, then be consistent going forward so that you're, you know, if you're going to have house rules, be consistent with your house rules. And that helps reduce a lot of that anxiety that the most of the rules lawyers I've run into, it comes from anxiety. Yeah, and with, with some of that data collection that you're doing pre and post about satisfaction or what seems to, quote-unquote, work in a session, what, what factors seem to go into that where people are more satisfied? Um, generally, I've had better luck with more heroic cooperative play. So I've done uh, many groups with evil players or neutral players. Uh, I've done some that were kind of put on a competitive bent where, you know, whoever gets there first gets whatever prize. Um, I've had them be more mechanically driven and combat driven versus story driven. And the, generally the higher satisfaction ratings as a group and for most of the individuals come from the cooperative shared narrative heroic play. Those seem to get the highest scores. Uh, and this is all drawing upon uh, st established tools from the recreation therapy world mm -hmm. for activities. Uh, you have the uh, leisure interest surveys that I do, leisure interest assessments. You have the activity assessments. And they, have, you, they often use a scoring system that you can use numerically. So it makes it quick and easy to go, oh, well, we scored on a scale of 1 to 50. We scored a 47 with this game, and everybody was, you know, 35 or higher. We did really well versus other days it might have only gotten a 20 or something. Okay. So it really helps to put some numbers to it. And, again, recreation therapy has spent decades trying to figure out how to measure fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Is it better for this person that's here to work on a puzzle or to hear someone play music or to play a video game or do any number of things? It yeah. And, and even things like temperature or duration. So I was trying to figure out what is the ideal gameplay time? Because, I mean, we game six to 12 hours sometimes, uh, you know, when I was young. And, uh, and then we did those really short sessions at the school are 45 minutes to an hour and and everything in between and of course insurance companies really don't want to pay for more than 45 minutes to an hour per session one week for about 16 weeks mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to work with insurance companies which i have still got to work on that end all everything so far is either self-funded or through other facilities etc i'm still working with the adams have already gotten billable with with their their scope of their thing and that's the um, wheelhouse workshop yeah, we lost workshop. Yeah. yeah, Adam Davis and Adam Johns over in Seattle, and uh, and they were in the trailer uh, when I went on tour in October. So there was a three-hour video of us talking about our experiences and stuff cool. on our YouTube cool. channel. And um, so they've already gone billable with it because they're doing it under the drama therapy and family therapy. Um, recreation therapists don't have to define what the recreation activity is; they just have to show measurable results to the insurance company. Um, so. Billable shouldn't be a problem for me as a recreation therapist, but I haven't had to do it yet because I've been doing all this as a volunteer or uh, providing it free free services. And yeah, and as someone who is you know a licensed psychologist and 
I wonder what kind of, and I, I actually asked Adams this as well, like what kind of pushback do you get from those, like maybe even other recreation therapists or others in the medical mental health community about some of the work you're doing? The only real pushback I've had so far uh, of significant, I've had a lot of questions, but questions are good. Those are opportunities. Okay. The only ones where I had real pushback where they just went no way was the director of the TR department at the Eastern Washington uh, Mental uh, State Hospital. Um, he is near retirement, <laughs> and... Uh, I, I gave my whole pitch and everything, and he was adamant that it would be it would lead to dissociative behaviors, it would lead to violent behaviors, mm. uh, that it would be modeling violence, and and what and and I would show him the research that has already been established that shows that's not the case with role playing gaming, and um, it, it, quite the opposite appears. Uh, especially tabletop, uh, live action and computer based, you, you do get into a little bit more of a modeling thing. But with the tabletop being uh, fully narrative, uh, it seems to be quite the opposite. It, do, it, it doesn't feed violence having combat. For many people, it kind of lets them let out, you, know, if you can argue catharsis because there's different camps on the whole catharsis argument. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a, an outlet without reinforcing the actual physical uh, combative behavior. And the way I run the games, um, combat is, is always an option, but there's always consequences, and I usually use more combat dangerous um, rules modifications so that combat's a little scarier for a character. The consequences are worse. Okay. And so they're more likely to find other solutions. But there's also just the fun of hacking up a bunch of orcs. Right. <laughs> they, could get a, they could get a nice release from that experience. And uh, there are studies out there, there aren't mine, but there are plenty of studies out there showing that the and these are where we get into the argument between correlative and causal, mm -hmm. but that gamers have a lower uh, tendency towards violence, have a lower uh, level of psychoticism, have a lower level of meaninglessness. So there was a study of college students that the non-gaming peers, 43% of them reported very high levels of meaninglessness, whereas only 17% of the gamers did. And there's just study after study after study of these correlations between the gamers. Now, as far as causal, there's only a few, and, and there's the interesting was there's two studies, they were unrelated, neither one seemed aware of the other, for inpatient schizophrenic youth. And I, prior to coming across these studies, wouldn't even have considered using role-playing games for schizophrenia for, A, I'm not trained for that population at this stage, mm -hmm. and B, for fear of increasing dissociative and, and other behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, however, I've become less nervous about that over the years as I've delved into this because one study they had to terminate with two weeks into it because they did get violent, they had increased uh, problems with symptoms and had to terminate the program. The other study, they were able to reduce the medication, had very promising results and there, so, the, so the first study's assessment was role-playing gaming is bad for Schizophrenics don't use it. It will reinforce behaviors. The other study said role-playing game is great for schizophrenics. You should use it. it they're less dependent on medication. They, it helps them develop cognitive behavioral skills. This is a great tool. Why the heck did two completely different studies on the same population get such drastically different results? The, the, the key, control. These are both inpatient studies. So when, as you well know, I don't know if all the listeners, when people come to inpatient, it's the world is overwhelming and they can no longer function it's in some area and they need to be inpatient so some structure can be provided so they can rebuild, hopefully, rebuild themselves and get the strength and the skills they need to get functional back out in the world. And they need a controlled environment so that they're not completely overwhelmed so they can focus on those that internal stuff. They don't have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from, how they're going to pay the next bills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And... Of course, getting them stabilized in whatever their, uh, their their mental health issue might be, and of course you got to do all of that first. Get them stabilized. The study that went awry, what they did is they handed a stack of role playing gaming material, Dungeons and Dragons, to a bunch of juveniles and said, "Here you go, have fun," with no structure. They didn't set any time limits. They didn't set any time that they you know should or shouldn't do it. There's no limit on how much they did it. They just said, "Go for it." 
the other group that went well, they said, okay, just like your group therapy and your talk therapy and all these other things have a set time each day and there are limits, you know, these will be locked up except for this time when they can be taken out. Here's the times, you know, here's the days of the week that the games can be run. And it had structure to it because, again, they were there to help develop that structure. Mm -hmm. And that was that from everything I could tell from from both reports, the key was the structure. Right. And it and a night and day difference. Well, and the interesting thing about like the correlations and that doesn't imply causation. It's you know any two things could potentially be correlated, but yes, that might yes. not a might not directly result in b. Correct. Or b might not directly result in a. And unless you do a different type of experiment, you can't necessarily say a leads yes. to b. Yes. But what yes. often what often happens, and this is a really huge problem in the media, and I use that word in a very general sense. Um, like anytime you read any kind of study that's reported on, like on the Today Show or in Huffington Post or something. Lots of hype. Go to the original source and actually read the full study because eight times out of ten, it's like one small element of that study and oftentimes the overall – conclusions of the study itself are in direct opposite of what the, the right. news article will present. Right. So I, I think, you know, research is hard. Research is very difficult. There's a lot of standards that have to be met. You have to make sure you're taking care of the people involved in the research, mm-hmm. make sure the analysis is clear. Mm-hmm. And that takes time. It takes resources. And I think it's one of the reasons that there's not – I think there's been more and more research on gaming and yeah, since 2006, it's really been starting to grow. Yeah, but I think there's a lot of great questions. I still think there's more questions than answers. Well, that's and, the nature of science. <laughs> and you know, one of the things that, I mean, you kind of mentioned it in passing is this whole idea of you know, does do violent video games make people violent? And they're still trying to answer that question right. in some ways. Because we have conflicting studies. Some say yes, some say no. Some say it's state-based. Some say it's personality-based. They're, they're, yeah, they're, we still haven't dialed down and dialed into the variables. And the reason is, you know, do people who are inherently violent seek out violent games to play? Mm-hmm. Or does playing games make one violent? And you have to do right. some controlled experiments to decide yep. one exactly. way or the other. Um, exactly. So there's a lot of cool things that you could do with, you know, role playing games. And, you know, if we have any like undergrad or graduate students listening to this, hey, here's a dissertation for you. Just go at it. You probably have to do some convincing with your <laughs> with your committee. Um, it, but I think it there's hasn't, so many psychological principles you could really study in. And from what I've heard, it actually isn't that hard to sell. I mean, Sarah Bowman, her PhD is. You know, she based it on role-playing game studies. I, I keep running to person after person who their master's thesis, their PhD thesis, that was their thesis, something to do with role-playing game. And they said it wasn't that hard to sell mm-hmm. to research it. And because it, it is an area that has such a dearth of in-depth research. Um, and people contact me. I get emails every week, many times a week, people saying, oh, thank you for your site. This makes it so much easier for the subject I'm researching, for my class, for my thesis. So there's a lot of people. Um, and recently, a fellow named Kohei Kato out of Japan, mm-hmm. he's been on tour. Uh, he did a controlled study through his university in Japan, uh, and it's in it's on the blog section of RPG Research right now uh, about autism spectrum and role playing gaming and and they their quality of life and how they did in school and how they connected with friends and and they did a baseline and then an assessment after X number of weeks of participation and uh, and he he drew upon my research to start to get started on that and then built upon that and that's the beauty of making this available is then people can build on it instead of starting starting reinventing the wheel over and over and over we can actually make progress and build upon it um, I of course been working with lots of different autism spectrum populations from two and a half years old up into their 30s and 40s mm-hmm. uh, with great results. Um, generally, even just running non-therapeutic games, I typically have at least one person on the spectrum in almost all of my groups. There, some are just drawn to it despite mm-hmm. the stereotype behaviors and, and the fixations and such. The game broadens them. It, it, the activity of role-playing is their fixation. But because of the nature of the activity, it broadens them, whereas just, you know, collecting stamps or 
something like that that might be another fixation for, for another person with ASD, um, the game interface, they have to interface with people. They have to socialize. They have to communicate. They have to understand correctly and interpret and then express their wishes. Even if they're nonverbal, then they have to use whatever means of communication to com communicate for that activity so they can get their fix, if you will, of a, the enjoyment of the activity. And the activity, of course, opens you up to so many other topics, whether it's metallurgy or history or religion or whatever mm -hmm. um, throughout the course of the games and uh, but especially the communication skills and the cooperative play even with toddlers uh, we did this pilot here at Eastern uh, with two and a half to five year old uh, ASD toddlers with their neurologically normal peers and so we were a bunch of recreation therapy students and we had to come up with an activity to maintain their interest for 15 to 20 minutes uh, there'd be two of them at a time out of a group of a dozen and we're set up in a gym in different corners and different parts of the gym <clears throat> and they go from activity to activity and all the other groups recreational therapists came up with pretty standard recreational therapy obstacle courses or treasure hunts etc and they lasted about five minutes before they lost interest or fixated or something and, and didn't mm -hmm. continue the activity when they came to ours which was an adaptive LARP what we did is we used recreation therapy concepts of obstacles and token rewards and such, but we tied it together with a story and a narrative. Mm -hmm. They had to save the royal family, and the first step was to save the prince. So I got these big 18-inch uh, playing cards with the jack, queen, and king. Mm -hmm. And the first step was to overcome the swishing snakes, and they were just jump ropes that were swishing on the ground. And we didn't define how they overcame the snakes. We just said, you need to get from you know where you are to the jack and save him from the swishing snakes. And every pair came up with a different solution. And again, they were doing it collaboratively between the two of them. And remember, many of these were nonverbal communicators. Hmm. Um, one group decided to stomp on the snakes. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Another group decided a straightforward to go, approach. Exactly. Another group decided to step between the snakes and not get touched by them. Another group uh, uh, decided to go to the other side and grab the jump ropes and do the swishing themselves. <laughs> well, they controlled the snakes. That worked. <laughs> Whatever worked, that was fine. The parameters were open as long as they're getting from point A to point B. And they're having a great time doing it. So then they save the jack, and then they carry the jack card and keep him safe. Don't let him drop. Don't let him fall. And the next obstacle was the rings of fire, which were just a bunch of hula hoops. But they had to jump from hula hoop to hula hoop or go through them horizontally as a tunnel and, you know, not fall in the lava. And again, these obstacles are cliche recreation therapy activities. And you hear like high ropes courses and low ropes courses, mm -hmm. totally cliche to do these kinds of activities for all age groups. Uh, but we were tying in the story. And so the next one is rescue the queen. They get through and they save the queen. And so now we're 10 plus minutes into the activity and they're fully engaged. Mm -hmm. And then we go to the next one where they had to stack these or throw these dice that had little animal and, and monster faces on them. You know, they were cute monsters, not scary monsters. But it might be a dragon, but it was a cute dragon. And then they had to they had to somehow communicate what that animal was that was face up, whether it was to make a roaring noise or to paw at the air or whatever. Or if they could speak, you know, use the word or make a bark bark sound for a dog or something like that. And then and then that helped them tame the creature and then they could move on and then save the king. And then they get to the end and there's the royal festival. They get a crown on their head and they get some balloons and had a great old time. Uh, out of uh, everybody in our group, all but one made it all the way through the course and did the full 15 to 20 minutes. Wow. We did we did have one of the most profoundly impaired uh, fixate on the, the dice and she started stacking the foam dice uh, with you know stereotype behavior. But she was perfectly happy. <laughs> she stayed engaged, at least. Mm -hmm. um, that was the only one that didn't make it through the full program with a full duration, mm -hmm. um, which which was controlled compared to all the other groups. Um, you know, we we did a lot better with with ours because of I, I believe because of the the connecting stories and keeping them engaged. So what a, kind of shifting gears a little bit, I know yeah. you talked about sort of the pros and cons of the different uh, role-playing game formats. So mm -hmm. everything from tabletop to computer-based, and I guess going in ahead, we all have VR to, to deal yeah. with, which yeah. will be really fascinating. Um, but, you know, since you've been playing games since, the I think, the 70s, yep. it's now 40, 40 years later. 
and this is kind of a general question. Um, I'm curious to see what you, what you, how you answer it, but what in role playing games has changed and what stayed the same? Well, it's gone through different trends um, in tabletop. I mean, first of all, it all started with tabletop coming from wargaming. Mm-hmm. And and prior to 74, it didn't exist. And later we had computer games and live action and choose-your-own-adventure. And so those are offshoots of the original. And you kind of have had, like, then more offshoots with the collectible card games and then more off, you know. And then coming back to roots and then offshoots and then roots. And also complexity. We've gone from... They, the original D&D rules to AD&D to second edition complexity to third edition complexity uh, and Rollmaster uh, and, and all these. And two, in the last 10 years, really trying to get simplified. Some of them, I believe, going too simplified, too story, too uh, abstract. Not for everybody, but just in a general sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for example, the Margaret Weiss game... Uh, Serenity with the Cortex One system versus their new version of Firefly with their with the new Cortex system. The I had a number of, of groups play both over the years, and the consistent message was though the books were written in just as fun a way as the original books, and the settings just as much fun. The system w- was a little less rewarding than the older system because the newer system was really abstracted out. They don't have a concept of equipment or money. Instead, you have the dice pools that you can draw upon that says, well, roll a die, and if you get this threshold, you find what you're looking for. You, you find a beer bottle to smash over somebody's head, mm-hmm. as opposed to having it defined. Right. In the Serenity system, you had equipment lists. You had the value of the equipment list, and there you had what was detailed in the equipment, not this abstract, more uh, drama therapy style, uh, or not therapy, but a, a freeform play. So it's that ebb and flow from rigid to freeform and back and forth. I've really been watching come and go uh, over the, the last couple of decades. And so what's and, the system that you mainly enjoy playing now? You know, it really depends. <laughs> I, I am not fixated on any one. I am researching new, or evaluating a, current, a new one, which is the D20 adaptation of the One Ring role-playing game. So I have a huge background in Tolkien. I'm the founder of the local Tolkien Society, uh, Other Minds Magazine, which is Tolkien role-playing gaming, Middle-Earth Talk Radio, uh, Middle-Earth Role-Playing, Merp.com. So I have a huge Tolkien background. So my mm-hmm. favorite setting has become Tolkien because I know it so well, and it's an easy intro for people because most people have seen the movies or read the books. Mm-hmm. Um, I also use King Arthur and a few others. So for me personally, I like to keep mixing it up. I'm always like to try different ones. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. I do like the detail of Rollmaster, but I don't like to let the system dictate the game. So my it's always story trumps rules, but you need to be consistent about in what ways that happens. Um, I am currently running a Rollmaster group, and I'm currently running a Tor group, the One Ring role-playing game, which is a more abstract game. And I'm about to evaluate the D20 adaptation of Tor. So full circle, Hobbits and Balrogs were in the original D&D, right? But they had to get rid of them because of copyright issues. Mm -hmm. There's now a licensed D&D 5th edition game called Adventures in Middle-Earth from Cubicle 7 Sophisticated Games by the people who made the One Ring role-playing game, Francesco Nefatello, out of Italy. And now we can have Balrogs and Hobbits and everything in a D20 setting. Um, they basically took Tor and replaced the races and classes of, of, of fifth edition with the Tor races and classes okay. and used the D20 mechanics. Um, and it looks very promising. And it might become, for fantasy role-playing, the default system I may use to try to get more controlled studies on, on one platform. Hmm. Uh, I have three groups I'm lining up f- during the, the sp- uh, Christmas break and into January to evaluate its viability. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's D20, it's much more accessible. So therapists have said, well, I want to do this in my facility. What should I do? And I'm like, well, go out, buy D&D 5th edition, learn how to play, etc. Get them to a group at the local gaming store if you can. And D20 is the most accessible to do that. It's not my favorite system, but it's accessible. And that's, in, in terms of doing research with role-playing games, I mean, that's just another factor to account for. Right. So you have yep, exactly. you have the individual differences of the game master. You know, yeah. every game master is different. I think, you know, 
everyone kind of is aware of that. Yes. And then every person around the table is different and they bring their own, you know, factors into the equation. And then the game system itself is a factor and the rules, or if you even have house rules, that's a different, it's a different idea. But I think the system itself kind of dictates the type of play you get. Um, which I mean, for me, it's the games I've most played over the last few years are, are D and D fourth edition and D and D fifth edition, you know, fourth edition was much more tactical fifth edition. It's, you know, a bit more, certainly more narrative than fourth edition. But if you're doing research and one researcher in city a is only using fifth edition and the researcher in city B is only using fourth, right. That can produce different results regardless of anything else that's going on. Correct. Correct, and that's why I'm trying to find something to to standardize that I think is is accessible, and that's why I'm looking at potentially this D20 Middle Earth because it gives a standardized setting and a standardized system that people can go out and buy. Um, I have lots of stuff that's out of print that I love to run, but it's out of print. <laughs> um, I love running Merp. I love running Twilight 2000, things like that, but those are not easy to get. Um Back to your original question about pros and cons for each format. Um, I have a quick checklist on that. So, for example, the Choose Your Own Adventure solo games, the the pros are that it's accessible to a wide population. It's flexible time commitment because it doesn't have to be a long commitment. You can pick it up and mm-hmm. stop whenever you need to. It's well-structured. It's reusable. It's inexpensive. And it has an easy learning curve for anybody wanting to implement it. You, know, you don't have to like spend hours learning how to do it. Right. You pick up the book, and it walks you through how to do it. Uh, some of the cons are that it's not generally social unless you do a little modified, adapted to be read aloud by others. Uh, John Welker, who you know has been joining recently, he has done that where – Two or three people are are participating in this choose your own adventure process of making decisions. Um, it, it, it is very rigidly structured. It doesn't allow flexibility outside of the the if then design of the books. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really allow for any real character development and requires matching their language ability to the book, and usually requires somebody with reading skills or someone to read for them. Now, even in that, there's flexibility because you had. Uh, Wizard, uh, back when it was TSR, they came out with solo adventure modules that you could either use a revealer pen to reveal the visible ink as you played along and rolled dice and you had a full character. Or they had a decoder, which I liked better, that, you know, a little red plastic, you'd hold it over and it would reveal the map and then you'd say, look up page 53 and then you decode page 53 and that's reusable and it gives you a pretty good, again, it's rigidly structured. But it was a nice, nice introduction to walk somebody through learning the process of role playing, the mechanics of it, not necessarily the social aspect. Right. Um, but that has value, and, yeah. and people often overlook the value of the solo role play. Um, not everybody can find a group to play with, or you know, holidays get busy, and and even for some people who are in crisis, I've found the solo role play can sometimes help as a soothing mechanism to give them a little something to do um, to take their mind off the pain they're in or if they're fighting cancer or something like that or if they're going through uh, drug withdrawal, it gives them some other activity to focus on. They're not necessarily ready for social interaction um, and and letting them do this, you know, they just, they want to be left alone but they want something to do their mind's racing too much to read a book but a little extra stimulus from a little role playing game but not the overload of a video game, mm-hmm. um these have been helpful for some people. So nobody else seems to talk about the solo role play stuff. So I always try to interject that in there that it's something to consider. Yeah. And it sounds like you have a lot of irons in the fire right now. So looking, oh, yeah. looking ahead, I know you have the, the, you know, wheelchair uh, trailer and trying to find kind of a, a control of sorts of a, of a game system to do more research. Um, how can people keep up to speed with what you're involved in? What's the best way for them to get in contact with you if they have questions? RPGresearch.com and my email, RPGresearcher, you know, ER, at gmail.com are by far the best ways. Um, I post there first, then my Patreon page is patreon.com forward slash RPGresearch for people who are supporting. They get early access to materials before others. Um, and then Twitter and last of all, Facebook. I'm not a Facebook fan. I'm I'm all over Facebook under different aliases because I have my I have my music background as Synthetic Zen. I have my role playing game background. I have my Tolkien Society background. I have my, I run a weekly sign language group. I have so 
but I don't use it personally at all. <laughs> okay. You got, yeah. lot, you got a lot of worlds that you got your feet in. Exactly, exactly. And I keep them separate. So, um, uh, so yeah, the email and, and the website are by far the best, best ways to stay in contact. Um, and we are also through RPGtherapy.com where we now have uh, training and certification courses on role-playing gaming. It's available to laymen as well as professional educators and professional therapists trying to figure out how to integrate role-playing gaming into what the, into their lives. And some of it's just for advocacy, you know, that, that they just want to be able to, if they get confronted by an anti-gamer person, like here in Spokane, I've run into three different people in the past year, um, being able to have the facts and figures and, and the research and the history available. Uh, I've had some turnarounds. I had some people who had banned their kids from gaming, and now uh, this receptionist at the office I was at, she regrets it. She, I mean, she's like, oh, I can't believe I deprived my kids of that now that I understand it. Mm. Um, and she come from a very devout Christian background. Her pastor told her, don't do it. She didn't research it. And she was afraid when she saw I was running D&D at the offices. And so we had a number of conversations over a few weeks, and she was open-minded enough to, to read the stuff I handed her and check it out on her own. And uh, that was a complete turnaround. doesn't always work that way. Yeah. But there's training for that. There's training for teachers who want to. There's all a lot of research on using role-playing games for the classroom to increase learning, and it's very effective because of the immersion. Your retention and long-term recall scores are so much higher, and that's that area is pretty well researched. Yeah. So that's an area that I don't have to uh, blaze any trails in. I can just help point people in the right direction and guide them. Yeah, and it's really been great to talk talk with you. Who's obviously a strong advocate for role playing games, and you know also of someone who's interested in finding out why these things work and how they work and how best to tweak them and use them going forward. So, uh, thank you so much for your time here this evening. You bet. Thank you.